In his painting, Fourth of July in Center Square, the German-born artist John Lewis Krimmel depicted a diverse crowd congregated in Center Square, Philadelphia, to celebrate the anniversary of the nation's independence. Figures extend across the middle and foreground, collected together in small gatherings, representing different social and racial groups. When Krimmel displayed his view of Center Square at the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts in 1812, a reviewer for the portfolio remarked, quote, there are few people, if any, who visit the Academy who are not perfectly acquainted with the scene of which this is so familiar and pleasing a representation. It is truly Hogarthian and full of meaning, end quote. Several scholars have since pondered the nature of this Hogarthian meaning, wondering if the painting was read by its early national audience as a moral corrective or as a subtle reinforcement of social and racial hierarchies. While most scholars have focused on the colorful crowd and their interpretation of this well-known early American genre scene, in my paper today I will instead direct our attention to the structure looming in the background. I propose that Kremel's representation of the Center Square Waterworks, along with his inclusion of the Bank of Pennsylvania and his watercolor Black Sawyers working in front of the Bank of Pennsylvania, offer a satirical critique of corruption, failure, and unequal and inefficient distribution of resources in early national Philadelphia. These two images, both produced circa 1812, prominently depict two celebrated buildings, the Center Square Waterworks in the image on the right and the Bank of Pennsylvania on the image on the left, designed by the architect and engineer Benjamin Latrobe, and completed only a few months apart in 1801. For scholars like Alexander Nemiroff, Krimmel's combination of a raucous crowd and neoclassical structures visualized the tension between the rougher, uncontrollable elements of urban life and architects like Latrobe, who sought to impose order and refinement upon the city by shaping it into an Athens in the wilderness. A closer look at the function and public perception of these institutions demonstrate, however, that their structures were deeply enmeshed in the very unpredictability, unruliness, and inequality that characterized the urban environment in the early Republic. I propose that Krimmel's images ultimately investigate the internal failure of the waterworks in Bank of Pennsylvania, as they became associated with issues of corruption, blockage, and inefficiency, and their circulation of water and banknotes. Managed by corporations, a new type of body in the United States, both entities attempted to consolidate control over credit and natural resources, crucial to early national cities and their increasingly interconnected hinterlands. The Center Square Waterworks and Bank utilized neoclassical architecture to convey this sense of permanent security and power. For the general public, however, unable to ascertain the hidden complexities of corporate banking and steam engine, excuse me, steam engine technology, the lack of transparency in these buildings simultaneously reassured and heightened suspicions regarding their processes, whether the underground circulation of water or the mysterious production and exchange of money that occurred behind closed doors. Krimmel's paintings investigate the economic, political, corporeal, and environmental concerns that eventually corrupted these structures in early 19th century Philadelphia. In previous interpretations of Fourth of July in Center Square, most scholars have focused on the diverse crowd congregated in the image's foreground, generally overlooking the appearance of the engine house. Krimmel's depiction of the structure is far removed from the gleaming white vision initially depicted by Thomas and William Russell Birch in the city of Philadelphia, a popular illustrated text published in 1800 and about which we've already heard a little bit from Jeffrey. 
Waterworks were initially conceived to improve the health of Philadelphia's urban bodies in an effort to decrease the risk of yellow fever, disastrous outbreaks of which, in the late 18th century, mobilized citizens to improve the sanitary conditions of their city. In Latrobe's design, commissioned by the city in 1798, steam engines, a relatively new technology in late 18th century America, pumped water from the Schuylkill River through a large underground tunnel six feet in diameter to a reservoir at the top of the engine house at Center Square. And I should mention, for those of you who are familiar with Philadelphia, Center Square is where Philadelphia City Hall is today. From this elevated reservoir, water was distributed to smaller wooden pipes, supplying free, free public hydrants, fountains, and commercial and residential subscribers in the eastern part of the city. To house the engine house's elevated reservoir and steam engine, Latrobe envisioned a circular drum and a square foundation, appropriating temporal and funerary forms from antiquity. Through the incorporation of marble, Doric columns, and other neoclassical elements, Latrobe's design provided visual evidence that the arts in America could be both pleasing and useful. The Birch's engraving of this temple to civic engineering visualized a symbol of civility, economic prosperity, and refined taste for the expanding city. Since the building was not completed until 1801, after the city of Philadelphia's publication, the Birch's image also served as a speculation on the city's future. In 1800, the Philadelphia's status as a political and economic center appeared in jeopardy, as a national, as a national capital to camp to the newly built city of Washington, and New York City surpassed Philadelphia in economic prominence. In the wake of these setbacks, Latrobe's engine house envisioned a new prospect of scientific and artistic achievement for the city. By the time Kribble produced and exhibited Fourth of July in Center Square, 12 years after the Burgess publication and 11 years after the waterworks began operation, urban entertainments, crime, corruption, and fears of internal blockage became progressively associated with the site. In order to accommodate the structural foundation shape, Latrobe tightly crammed machinery within the engine house's dome cylinder. A timber brace supporting the engine thrust obtrusively into the lobby to the right, and the flywheel, which you can see here, had to be slotted into the masonry wall. Once installed and operational, the volatile steam engines and the related machinery required frequent and expensive repairs and generally wreaked havoc on the waterworks system. Two workmen died from suffocation when working in the cramped space of the boiler chamber in 1801. The system proved unreliable in crisis situations, failing to supply enough water to quench an 1805 fire because Nicholas Roosevelt, the manager of the lower engine house on the Schuylkill River, siphoned excess steam power to, to run his own manufacturing business. <laughs> Newspapers decried this inept management, encouraging the watering committee, which oversaw the work's operation, to, quote, release the city from this pernicious obstruction, end quote, through offers of payment to the offending manager. Roosevelt proved difficult to appease. He warned the watering committee that if they did not agree to his terms and forgive his debts, he would stop the water supply altogether. He even threatened to blow up the lower engine house with gunpowder. Roosevelt made these threats in September, at a time, a time of year when fears of yellow fever still ran high, generating unease among urban citizens. The clarity and composure that characterized the exterior of Latrobe's design, projecting an outward vision of health and classical virtue, therefore ultimately masked internal chaos and congestion. Criminal's paintings and other excuse me, Crimmel's painting and other visual and textual responses to the site, however, 
suggested the building's internal corruption still manifested itself externally within the urban landscape in various ways. The facade of the engine house in Crimmel's painting appears mottled and discolored, and two windows in the building's cylindrical tower are partially open in an attempt to admit fresh air to the hidden interior. The billowing cloud of smoke undulating out of the dome's oculus appears much more threatening than the small plume in the birch's engraving, and, in fact, may be responsible for the haze permeating the space beneath the Lombardi poplars. The center square steam engines ran on a mixture of wood and bituminous coal, and the watering committee worried that its huge consumption of fuel could negatively affect prices for Philadelphia citizens, who are already contending with the escalating cost of heating homes and businesses due to the rapid depletion of easily accessible firewood. Sometime after 1806, the watering committee attempted to power the steam engine with anthracite coal mined in the Lehigh Valley, but found that it only served to put the fire out and the remainder was broken up and spread on the walks like gravel. It was not until the 1820s that entrepreneurs discovered how to efficiently burn anthracite with limited oxygen and high heat. The center square engine house in Crimmel's painting, turning out a ribbon of dark smoke and surrounded by paths with unburned anthracite, therefore became a very visible symbol of inefficiency and fuel waste to local citizens. In an 1816 letter to Polson's American Daily Advertiser, an anonymous author with the moniker Civis called for the demolition of the engine house, which he described as vomiting, quote, torrents of smoke and soot, contributing to its gloomy condition within a polluted field, end quote. Such visual and textual descriptions marked the engine house as an unhealthy, contaminated body, with internal corruption seeping out through its stained marble walls. Even William Rush's 1809 fountain sculpture, presiding over the crowd in Crimmel's painting, became beleaguered by its persistent associations with corruption and immorality. Carved out of pine and painted white to resemble marble, this allegorical figure, entitled Water Nymph and Bittern, stood in classical contrapposto and carried a bittern, a local marsh bird, on her shoulder. And here I'm showing you a later bronze copy on the left, uh, since the original is no longer extant. Rush served as an active member of the Watering Committee, and he made key symbolic choices to visually reference the source of the city's water supply in his water nymph sculpture. The water bubbling from the arranged, artfully arranged rocks at the base and issuing to a height of 17 feet from the upraised beak of the bird visually connected the statue to the hidden processes of the waterworks behind it, representing both the water source of the Schuylkill and its subsequent dispersal, albeit in an aestheticized and allegorical way. The multiple and varied reactions to Water Nymph and Bittern, depicted in Kermel's painting and recorded in the popular press, speak to the public fascination and anxiety regarding the structure she embodies. The men to the far left, uh, which you can see here, appear enamored with the sculpture, and one gestures wildly with his cane. As he remarks on the figure to his neighbors and the excuse me, on the figure to his neighbor. The elegantly dressed woman to the right, here. Uh, aspect, um, excuse me, mirror aspects of the water nymph's pose and dress. The Quaker gentleman in the center here leads his wife and son away from the offending nymph. He shakes a finger at his son who appears eager to climb over the fountain fence with the other young boys while his wife surreptitiously glances behind her to examine the allegorical figure. The gentleman's index finger, however, like that of his son, which is pointed upward, echoes the fountain's upward spouts of water, suggesting perhaps a more ambivalent reaction to the sculpture. 
While several local newspapers praised Water Nymph and Bittern, an 1809 letter to the Tickler described an encounter with a group of tittering females observing the center square fountain. One grave matron exclaimed, quote, why is so modest a representation exhibited to public view and under a government like ours, where virtue ought to be the basis of our public institutions, end quote. A gentleman bystander instructed the woman to consider the political frenzy which has raised a, quote, bundle of presuming, ambitious, and ignorant fellows to political consequence, end quote. He explained that Russia's sculpture was but a trifling consequence of their success. It is possible but that this gentleman was alluding to the waterworks as the greater, more troublesome consequence of ambitious and ignorant city politicians. Russia's bittern was occasionally described in the local press as struggling to flee from the mint's grasp. Hinting at the difficulties the engine house experienced in harnessing, regulating, and containing the school's resources. The varied reactions to Russia's allegorical figure in the press and in Krimmel's painting together speak to the growing concern regarding faulty technology, environmental pollution, and the failure of art and architecture to mask those modern realities behind a classical facade. Indeed, when Krimmel displayed his view of Center Square at the Pennsylvania Academy in 1812, Frederick Graff and John Davis, two former Latrobe assistants, had already submitted a proposal for a more secure and economical engine house to be built at Fairmount on the banks of the Swickle River. Crimmel again combined a classical building designed by Latrobe with a less refined crowd and black sawyers working in front of the Bank of Pennsylvania. In this watercolor, the bank, located on 2nd Street between Chestnut and Walnut, provides a stoic, refined background for three carpenters cutting firewood, an additional reference to fuel consumption in the city, and a black woman holding a white baby. A man in a top hat with his back to the viewer tends a cart full of uncut timber. Nemirov argues that the diagonal lattice of the cart in Black Sawyers disrupts the verticality of the bank's straight ionic columns, with the rough wood providing a contrast to the gleaming marble, imagining a vernacular resistance to the building's assertion of republic values. The Bank of Pennsylvania, however, also faced criticism for its lack of transparency and potential corruption. Open only a few months after the waterworks on June 29, 1801, the bank, like the Center Square Engine House, utilized neoclassical architecture to convey a sense of permanent security and control in order to alleviate public fears and concerns regarding the building's functions. The Birches paired the bank and the waterworks to conclude the city of Philadelphia, and the projects were inextricably linked in both Latrobe's mind and his public reputation. In 1812, ironically, the same year the city accepted plans to overhaul his waterworks design, Latrobe wrote, quote, For my professional reputation, I should have done enough had I only built the Bank of Pennsylvania and supplied the city with water. Many important figures on the city's watering committee also held an interest in the bank including Samuel Fox, the first president of the Bank of Pennsylvania, and Thomas P. Cope, one of the bank's first stockholders. Like the engine house, the bank was primarily constructed with white marble that stood out against the surrounding brick buildings, characterizing Philadelphia's urban landscape. Both the exterior and interior of the bank, from the tall marble ionic columns lining the front portico to the soaring vaulted ceiling inside the main room, were designed to produce a sublime sense of awe distracting the public from its more nefarious and controversial internal workings. A new type of United States body controlled both the waterworks and the Bank of Pennsylvania, the corporation. Imported from England as a means for wealthy urban elites to retain economic influence in the face of egalitarian early national politics, the corporation served as a base of power for a group of individuals, 
with support of the state. Flourishing in Philadelphia, especially in the banking and water supply sectors, corporations not only provided economic power, they also supplied the means for a privileged group to stabilize, establish order, and reacquire control over the early national landscape. The Watering Committee, for example, kept a separate budget and records from the rest of the city government, possessed the authority to enter into contracts, collected taxes, own land, and racked up debt. From 1799 to 1825, Philadelphia's water system consumed approximately half of the city's budget, receiving even more money than fortifications erected during the War of 1812. The specifications of Latrobe's underground main and pipe system meant that the Watering Committee retained control over those who received water. Residents and businesses had to lobby the committee to have main installed, pay a fee of up to $100 for a permit, and hire a committee-appointed plumber to install the appropriate hookup. While ostensibly introduced to benefit public health, the waterworks ultimately perpetuated environmental and social injustice by only delivering Schuylkill water directly to the homes of wealthy Philadelphia citizens. Residents of, excuse me, residents of poor neighborhoods can only access the system via a public spigot. Although underground pipes connected homes and individuals to the body of the city and the Schuylkill River, they still excluded certain less affluent members of the urban population. Corporations also ran Philadelphia's banks during the early national period. And to many citizens, the establishment of corporate banks produced anxiety because the incorporation of banks meant the incorporation of money itself. The Bank of Pennsylvania possessed a particularly ambiguous and occasionally hostile relationship with the state government and other corporate banks because it tried to limit state investment and oversight in order to assert control over their own institution in the state economy. The bank wielded significant influence over who received a loan for how much and for how long. It would be several years before the nation experienced the catastrophic economic impact of the abuses of the banking system following the financial panic of 1819, but a few citizens vocalized their concerns much earlier. Matthew Carey, the Philadelphia printer and publisher, for example, published multiple condemnations of the Bank of Pennsylvania's practices and favoritism, even while he served on the bank's board. Corporations therefore enabled simultaneous diffusion and, cons and consolidation of power and opportunity as they centralized, rooted, and controlled the flow of water and money throughout the city. Even though the exterior of the Bank of Pennsylvania remains white and unblemished in criminal's watercolor, the artist found other ways to highlight its lack of transparency and impenetrability. Multiple barriers visually separate the structure from the figures in the foreground, including a brick wall and iron fence, you can see on the left, and the horse cart obscures any discernible entrance to the building. We are literally cut off from the structure. The woman in the foreground of Black Sawyer's may be raising her hand in a friendly greeting, but she may also be negotiating a sale, perhaps ordering firewood for her home or the home of the child in her care. Fuel was a significant expense in Philadelphia, especially during the War of 1812, when British blockades prevented bituminous coal from arriving from England and Virginia and many families struggled to purchase wood to heat their residences. The pairing of firewood preparation in the foreground and the marble-columned bank, a kind of mysterious machine generating wealth in the background, underscore these issues of availability and access. An investigation of the wider social, economic, spatial, and environmental contexts of the Center Square Waterworks in the Bank of Pennsylvania renders Kreml's depiction of these buildings more significant. 
both Fourth of July and Center Square and Black Sawyers working in front of the Bank of Pennsylvania, registered the corruption, inefficiency, and inequality that plagued the public reception of the waterworks and corporate banks in early national Philadelphia. Crimmel's allusions to wood, banknotes, and water, three pervasive entities circulating throughout these two images, whether overtly visible or not, together underscore the ultimate failure of the Center Square waterworks in the Bank of Pennsylvania and their associated unequal distribution of resources during the early republic. Thank you. <laughs>